So week eight, we made it to week eight, and I feel like I had made a colossal error of time judgment last week, and we kind of uh, rushed through the last part of our outline. Instead of just go back to it and just revisit that, I want to take a different stab at it here. As we see on your worksheet, we're going to summary, have a little summary and review of where we left off last time. Maybe a little different tact will help us um, put that section to rest on the baptism of the Spirit. Before we get to that, though, we want to pray. Hopefully your meal tonight was good. Was it good? It wasn't Mexican food tonight. That's too bad. But that's fine. Panda Express. Did you like Panda Express? Is that good? No, you didn't? All right. Okay. It's one thing you get used to in the pastorate is plaints. So it's great. No problem. You guys okay? You ready to do this? Week eight? Let's do this. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for our opportunity to stop just what we're doing on a Thursday night and whatever we would be doing and gather together to open your word particularly on this topic, so important for us to understand, so much misunderstanding, so much confusion, uh, so much assumption. And unfortunately, as we've noted in all of these topics, there's a lot of uh, reliance on feelings and presumption and just what seems to make sense in our own minds, in our own background, our own experience. We begin to bring our experience to the text and try to interpret the text based on our experience instead of the other way around. So thanks so much that we can get into your word, look at it carefully, try and be good students who study to show ourselves approved unto you and rightly handling your word. We want to be careful with this in every doctrine, but particularly as we think about the Spirit, our contact with you, our living, present connection with you. And so we want to uh, we want to understand his work in our lives. So thanks, God, as we uh, set out now at the beginning of this session to look at the last session and try and clear up a little bit of that confusion. I pray this would be effective and helpful and get us on to the topic of our uh, study tonight and pray it would be enlightening, helpful, motivating, and encouraging in Jesus' name. All right. Well, I'm sorry we ran out of time last week, but let's get into wrapping up, buttoning this up. Hopefully we can do this without any confusion, but I want to start by just taking a moment to talk about genres. Now, I could talk about genres for a long time. I actually teach a course at the seminary on genres, but that would be boring and take a long time, but at least it would be helpful to do a little bit of background discussion on genres, which we naturally uh, bring to our reading of the text so often, but we need to clarify. Uh, Genre uh, is a transliterated um, French word of all languages, and uh, we have a version of it that we use in our everyday language when we use the word gender. Gender comes from that same word, genre. And that's very helpful for us uh, because it is easy for us to understand because we interact with human beings and people and we see them as one, you know, ontological essence. We, I mean, we know what people are and yet they come in two primary types, two categories, male and female. Uh, so when we're talking about genres in literature or music or anything, we're talking about a type, a category, a sort. You know, your uh, iTunes is broken up into genres, you have a classical, you know, pop, rock, whatever you've got on your, your uh, iPhone. And, and when you go on Amazon.com on the left-hand side, you go to the book section, you have all these categories uh, of, of writings. You've got biographies, history, you know, whatever, fiction, nonfiction. And of course, these are all telescopic. And by that, I mean, if you go to a bookstore and you see categories of fiction and nonfiction, that's, that's genres, but then you have all kinds of subcategories. So you have these overlapping umbrellas of categories. Well, this is important when we talk about texts that relate to the Holy Spirit. 
when we make this distinction in our minds, and we can talk about the dozens of biblical genres, you know, from uh, apocalyptic to poetic and all kinds of things. But uh, when we talk about texts about the Holy Spirit, it's important for us to make this distinction. Uh, let's talk about category one of, as being narrative. We use that a lot in the pulpit. You know what that means. But maybe this word will help make the distinction as we compare it to another genre, and that is descriptive texts, texts that just tell us what happened, all kinds of narrative texts. And uh, if you're a, a preacher or you're being trained to be a preacher or a teacher, uh, these are the harder texts for us to preach. They're, they're attractive. We want to go to the text because we love story. We love telling stories. But it's easy for us to misrepresent the truth of God's word uh, in narratives because we've got to know uh, other aspects of Scripture, the principles of Scripture, so we don't misapply narratives, which is my contention, as you'll see in our discussion of pneumatology as it relates to uh, our application of biblical principles. Uh, didactic is, is I hope it's, uh, I don't know, I hope it's not a completely foreign word to you. We use it when we talk about uh, genres. It's certainly a major category that distinguishes from narrative. Narrative texts are descriptive texts. Here's what happened. Didactive texts are instructive texts. We use both of these uh, as primary genres throughout our study of systematic theology. We do it all the time. Uh, we've been doing it throughout the series in the last seven sessions, and uh, we don't often draw attention to it. Uh, but we should, particularly when we think about the major misunderstanding regarding the baptism of the Spirit, we need to make this distinction in our minds. For instance, before we ever get to that, let's just talk for a second about conversion texts. There's texts that talk about how to become a Christian or becoming a Christian. Becoming a, well, let's just not use our words. Uh, those aren't usually the biblical words, but becoming someone who's right with God, reconciled to God. Someone who's hostile, alienated to God, becomes reconciled to God, becomes a son of God, a child of God, uh, conversion texts. For instance, when we're reading through the New Testament, Acts, of course, is one giant narrative text. Uh, I mean, there are sections of poet, poetry and didactic text. By the way, didactic, I didn't say that, but that comes from the Greek word uh, didaskalos, which is the word to teach, and it in, it's instruction, and we'll illustrate it here. Narrative text, Saul, for instance, who is going to become Paul in Acts 9, if you read about his conversion, well, it starts with a bright light knocking him off of his horse. So he gets knocked down, he has a bright light, he has an audible vo voice that not only he hears, but everybody with him hears, and verse 7 verifies that. There's all these stages prescribed. Okay, now I want you to go to this place, to this street, in this city, you'll meet this guy. All these prescribed stages in his conversion. He's blinded, physically blinded. He can't see, verses 8 and 9. And then he gets his sight restored, and then the Bible says the Spirit indwelt him. He was, he was given the Holy Spirit and filled with the Spirit. Okay, God speaks to him audibly after getting knocked off of a horse with a bright light, audible voice, all these stages, physically blinded, something like scales are falling off his eyes, and his, his sight is restored, and then he gets the indwelling of the Spirit. He becomes a, a Christian, as we would define it. Okay, I doubt that's anybody's testimony in the room. This is a narrative text, and when you're trying to share the gospel with your neighbor, you're not taking this narrative text and trying to get your neighbor to... to, to have this experience, are you? I'm not saying that. Well, let's wait for the bright light. You know, are you hearing any voices yet? Uh, you're standing up. Uh, at some point, you're going to be knocked down, right? Then God is going to give you all these, these instructions, like a big, uh, you know, a scavenger hunt. And then at the end of that, you know, if you, if, if you'll probably be blinded, and then you'll be able to see, and then the Spirit will invade your life. You don't give any of your non-Christian friends that instruction. And yet, that's a narrative text about how Paul became a Christian in the book of Acts. 
A didactic text on becoming a Christian, for instance, we could go to a teaching book like Romans that gives us instructions on that, and it says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Okay, Paul's getting saved in Acts 9, and we have all the series of things that happen. That's a narrative description of Paul's conversion. If I want to teach someone how to be saved, I'm going to go to a didactic text, and I'm going to tell them this is what God said and God's Word says about how to be saved. You see the distinction. That's easy for you. You see it, and you don't make the mistake of going to Acts and trying to have someone recreate the experience of the Apostle Paul when he got saved, right? Right, Mike. Okay, when it comes to the Spirit and the baptism of the Spirit, we have, we have problems with this. This is, all, well, this is what I was trying to say as we wrapped up last time. Narrative texts of the baptism of the Spirit, where the Spirit comes upon them, and then there's this manifestation of the Spirit. We have it in Acts 2. Who are the subjects there? The disciples. Now, remember this. This is what I tried to say at the end, and I said it very quickly. But they were disciples. And I asked you the question, if they died, would they go to heaven? Which I think stumbled some people. But you, you got to the place where you recognized, if you're not thinking eschatology, you're just thinking about, are they reconciled? You say, yeah, they're reconciled to God. They're in Christ. I mean, you think about uh, P- uh, Peter, when he doesn't want to get his feet washed by Christ. Christ says, well, you're clean, right? This, this metaphor of washing feet in terms of you being right with God and cleansed of your sins. So we know they're saved. But they don't have this experience until Acts 2, 50 days after uh, the death and resurrection of Christ. In Acts 8, we encounter the Samaritans. And we looked at that passage last time at the end of our time together where the Samaritans get saved. And then there's this baptism of the Spirit that takes place uh, with all the manifestations. The Italians get saved, Cornelius and his group, in Acts 10. And and that's described after Paul's conversion. By the way, we're just in Acts 9, Acts 10. And then in Acts 19, the Ephesians that we looked at, those men there who, you know, they're all about following Christ, although they don't know much about him other than the baptism of John and the coming of the one after him. And then they embrace this message from the apostles that it was all about Christ and they don't even know about the Spirit. And then they are baptized in the Spirit and there's a manifestation of the Spirit. The point I was trying to make last week is... All of these people were accepted prior to this experience with the Holy Spirit. What we saw is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The disciples were right with God, and yet they weren't baptized by the Spirit. Uh, The Samaritans, you could argue, at least right before this manifestation, had this, this conversion experience prior to the baptism of the Spirit. The Italian, Cornelius, said his prayers are coming up like incense before God in heaven. He's, he's got this acceptance and re, re, relationship with God, but not in the New Testament sense of being baptized by the Spirit. The Ephesians, they're all about this. They're, they're responding to the message of repentance and what they'd heard. And yet the apostles get there, sanction this, which is the point I tried to make last time at the end. And they're baptized by the Spirit with all the manifestations for everyone to see. This is what I said in Acts 1.8 was God's plan to have the disciples go out and make disciples in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. They do that by being endowed with power in Acts 2. They have this experience that shows some manifestation visibly, audibly, everyone can see it. The Samaritans get the same thing as they reconcile. Think about this, this amazing centuries-long rift with the Samaritans. They've got their own place of worship you know, in and, and, and Mount Gerizim, and they've got the temple in Jerusalem. There's a barrier between these two. Now they get exactly what they got at Pentecost, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. And then we get the first foreigner converted. Well, we'd say he's right with God in some sense as some Old Testament God-fearing 
person whose prayers are like incense before God, but the Spirit now comes upon him when Peter encounters him, and we have this manifestation that everyone sees, which is prior to the Jerusalem Council when they're trying to figure out how these non-Christians can be a part of the same thing they're a part of, and should we get them circumcised? What should we do with them? Well, they have the Spirit, and we saw the manifestation of that through Peter's sanctioning there in, in Acts 10 in Caesarea. Acts 19, same thing. What's the difference between Acts 10 and Acts 19? We have a foreigner who's in Caesarea. Now we're we're going way out to Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. So we're seeing the ends of the earth, not only the foreigners within the nation, but even now way out to the ends of the earth, the foreigners in the foreign lands. We see the concentric circles. And what I was trying to say is that the apostles had to be there to sanction this thing. They were there to because they're preaching a New Testament truth without a New Testament. There needed to be some visible manifestation that everyone could see. They got the Spirit just like I did. Because if you and I become Christians today, we can rely on the, on the didactic texts and say, are you a Christian? Well, what did you do? Well, I, I trusted in Christ. I, I see him as Lord. I, I believe in, I put my faith in him. And the Bible says that I'm saved. Well, we don't have a New Testament in, in, in that regard to be able to test our experience on. This was the validation, the miraculous signs that came with the quote-unquote baptism with the Spirit. That's the narrative through the book of Acts. It comes after people are, and you could argue with me on, on a couple of these, but these people are accepted by God. But now they have this imprimatur from the disciples or the apostles, and they have this manifestation that shows that the Spirit of God is in them as well. The didactic texts regarding the baptism of the Spirit, and these are the ones we quoted. Romans 6, this is review, 3 and 4. Don't you know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Therefore, question is, have we all been baptized by the Spirit? Well, if you're in a Pentecostal church, they'll say, well, I don't know. Some of you may be and some of you not. Have you had this manifestation of some miraculous thing, which they now are calling this ecstatic utterance, which, by the way, is not the miraculous thing, because we can't verify that that's miraculous. Anybody can do that. The question is, can you do what was done in the book of Acts? Speak in languages you've never studied, never learned, that everyone can verify who knows those languages that you're doing this miraculous thing. So the point is today we'd say, oh no, we look at a text like this and say, if we're a part of Christ, if we're in Christ, if we're sons of God, as Romans 8 goes on to say, if you don't have the spirit, you're not a child of God. Well, then we've all been baptized into Christ by the spirit. Baptism, we said, one-time event for every Christian at the beginning of his Christian life, it is simultaneous with his salvation. And that we says one-time event. We become acceptable to God at that moment. That's the didactic one, and we looked at another one, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13, for just as the body is one, has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Why? Because for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. So if you ask the Corinthians, who in the church is baptized by the spirit? They'd say, we all are. If we're Christians, obviously we have some non-Christians among us, and we know they're non-Christians because we can look at didactic texts and say, you haven't responded to the gospel the way the New Testament apostles told us to. But we have people today that think the baptism of the spirit should follow the pattern of the narrative texts 
that I said was a unique situation where God is sanctioning the expansion of the gospel that was blowing the minds of the Jews, saying, how in the world can the Samaritans have the same experience that we have with the Spirit? I shouldn't say that. The same relationship with the Spirit that we have, which was validated for that first century group in that upper room by that manifestation of the Spirit. Well, they got the same manifestation that everyone could see. Samaritans must be saved like we are. It must have the same relation to the Spirit that we have. Oh, and then Cornelius, the Italian, the soldier, and then the, the Ephesians. I guess this is something that is unique, or not unique, that is uh, available. This was the whole point of the Jerusalem Council and all the debates about this in the book of Acts. It's the same gospel for, the, for people, everyone. We don't need the Old Testament ceremonies. This is something that every person on the planet can respond to and be saved and have the relationship with the Spirit that we have. Today, we say, baptized by the Spirit, the moment you get right with God, you're baptized by the Spirit. There's no miraculous manifestations of that. If that's the case, all of us here are non-Christians. And the Pentecostals say, well, no, 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 let's divide the two experiences like they did in the book of Acts. And all I was telling you is those are narrative discussions of what God was doing to validate the call of the apostles to take the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. People can argue with me on that. And if you want more on this, I should have brought some book titles. There are several. Stott's book, I think of that one, uh, Baptism in the Spirit. Unger's book, Baptism in the Spirit, same title, and his gifts, I think is a subtitle. I'll get you a bibliography later. And we could talk for hours on this. That's what a book is all about. You sit sit for hours with a book. But I trust that is helpful for you. Narrative, didactic. That I thought would be a good paradigm for us to use to try and think through the book of Acts. Therefore, the question is, should we seek a second experience with the Spirit? I'm going to say, yes, it's called being filled with the Spirit. It's not called baptism with the Spirit. Baptism of the Spirit takes place at your conversion, and it is not accompanied by this miraculous manifestation that we see in the book of Acts. Any more than your conversion, like Paul's, was with a light getting knocked off a horse, going blind, having a series of instructions, and you'd all say, well, of course not. And that's what I'm trying to say for those that are a bit confused using narrative texts and ignoring didactic texts. Then they have to ask the question, which is a bit hard. We have to ask the question, why would God do that? And I think I've tried to explain that to you multiple times now. Helpful? No? Smile at me if that was even moderately helpful. Okay, a few of you. Thank you. Stretched lips, only a few teeth I saw, but that's all right. That's good. It's encouraging. Okay, we can talk more on that, I suppose. Next week, not next week, we'll be eating turkey, I hope, next week. Week after that, uh, we'll deal a little bit more with some of the manifestations of the Spirit and the debates that take place among charismatic Pentecostals, although that's all the buzz on the Internet now. You should have enough of that under your belt. But nevertheless, we'll deal with that two weeks from tonight, Lord willing. What I want to deal with tonight for the remainder of our time is I want to talk about two things, indwelling and sealing. We've dealt with those a little bit, but I want to talk about those and delve a little bit deeper into some fascinating things that may be helpful for you. I left this word out, and I've chosen it carefully. I don't like, well, I shouldn't say I don't like the word. I love the word. It's great. Doxa in in Greek and kabod in Hebrew, they're great words. The problem is they're rarely understood among us. And when I'm preaching and I hit the word glory, I often say that. If you ask somebody, what does glory mean? Uh, 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 I don't know. They come up with something, but it rarely has a reflection of the biblical word. I use this word, even though I don't care to use this word in points, because I think it's not well understood because it is massively central to the the paradigm we're going to spell out. 
And I should say, if you're up on theology, James Hamilton, who I think has done a good job trying to underscore uh, at least the core of what I'm going to argue tonight in this section. So give him credit for helping me think through some of this. The glory of indwelling. Let's start with this. Let's think through letter A, the Old Testament worship center. Matter of fact, if you're thinking Old Testament and glory, you should put those two ideas together. Kabod in Hebrew means weight, gravity. Not gravity in terms of Newton, but in terms of, of weightiness, the gravity of something, the importance of something, the worth of something. And when it comes to the worship center and glory, hopefully those words go together. We've been reading in Ezekiel, have we not, about the departure of the glory and the return of the glory in our daily Bible reading. That, that idea often associated with the worship center because that is the focal point, as I like to say, the focused presence of God there in the Old Covenant. Just to anticipate some of this, Deuteronomy 31, 11, looking forward to some of these things, says, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose. Now think about this. This is kind of foreign discussion to us. We don't think about that in New Covenant terms, but in the Old Covenant, that's the idea. God is going to pick a place, he's going to choose a place, and then he's going to meet people there. And you're going to do things like read the law before Israel in their hearing, and it was instructed to do that. Exodus 25, 8, let them first make me a sanctuary. We're going to start with a place that is going to allow this, this canvas, if you will, for a, a, a focalized presence, the glory of God to dwell, that I may dwell in their midst. The whole paradigm of, of the old covenant was God choosing a place, and as they traveled, a nomadic place, it's called a tabernacle. The worship center's centerpiece was the tabernacle, which even had a centerpiece and a centerpiece and a centerpiece, like those things you break apart and there's all those things inside. You know the names of that, I don't. What are those called? Forget it. What are they called? You've seen those, right? Those little guys you tear in half and there's another guy inside? Yeah, that. Yeah, okay. The worship center had that. What was the centerpiece of the centerpiece of the centerpiece? The Ark of the Covenant, the box. And really, if you want to get technical, it was the space right there over the box where the the cherubim came together. That was the focalized presence of God above the box, in the box called the Holy of Holies, in the holy place, in the worship center. And they would have to take it up with all the stakes and the tents and travel around with it. And that was the focalized presence of God. And God then would speak in these terms, Exodus 25, 8. I'm going to dwell in their midst. Just keep reading. Exodus 29, 42 and 45. It shall be a regular burnt offering through your generation. So now you're bringing offerings which is important. We don't have time to explore all these, but it's a helpful theme, and we'll get back to it to touch on it at least. And you'll do that at the entrance of the tent of meeting, even that. You read the Old Testament as you do every year, and, and you have that sense of, okay, this is a place where you meet with God, and I'll meet with you there, and I'll speak to you there. And there I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my kabod, my glory, the weightiness of God in this place. And I will consecrate. What does that mean? What's that mean? Consecrate? Set it apart? Special? I'll make special the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests, these intermediaries, these functional servants that go between God and man. And I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. They will have a buffer, the people of the priesthood, and my focalized presence will be there, the locus of God, the the center of God's focalized weightiness among the people. Now, if you're an Old Testament person, you're thinking in those terms every day. 
every day. Matter of fact, when you sing with the worship songs of Israel, they're always talking about, wouldn't it be great to be near that? Even, the, even the, 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 the birds can find a nest there. Wouldn't it be great to be near there? And then they even idealized it. I mean, it is called that, Mount Zion, but the idea of Zion, God's dwelling place, that was the focus of everybody's attention. Now, this one I want to turn you to, Acts, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Kings 8. And I want to show you this because the question should come up in your mind uh, as it, you know, it, it, the, the Old Testament people are not stupid. They know that God does not live in the tent, and yet they're always talking about God living in the tent. They know that God is omnipresent. They understand that. But there's something about the kabod of God, the glory of God, the weightiness of God, the gravity of God, the focalized presence of God, that if you walked into it, you would die unless you did it the right way with all the ceremonies, with all the, the blood sacrifice, with the special people, only once a year, a certain amount of time, all of that, all the ceremony. Matter of fact, you remember here on Good Friday, some of you smile now, I can see your teeth. Remember the big curtain, right? That was the last barrier to get into that holy square room where the box was, where God's focalized presence was, and that was the divider. God was there, and yet they understood God's omnipresent. This is the, the dedication Drop down to verse 27, 1 Kings 8. Let's start reading there. But will God indeed dwell on earth? This is just helpful, I suppose, for any of the young people standing around as this was being said. Of course not, kids. All the adults, we all know that. Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain God. I mean, talk about space. I mean, God is is beyond all of that. How much less this house that I've built yet. Okay. With all of that, we know the ceremony. We know how this all worked. We know that your, your plan was all about putting a place, a tent of meeting, a place where you would dwell. Now we have the temple, the permanent place on Mount Zion. He says, but yet, verse 28, have regard to the prayer of your servant and to this plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house. Make this your focalized point of, of, of presence and attention. The place of which you said, now this was your idea, God, you're the omnipresent, expansive, transcendent God, but you're the one who said, my name shall dwell there. You're the one that set up this worship kind of orientation where we are connecting with God in a place. You said there would be a place where God's name would be, that you may listen to the prayers that your servants offer toward this place. And if you even look at the uh, parallel passage in Chronicles, I mean, this goes on and on about, you know, if they're sick and whatever, toward the temple, we pray. And from the temple, you look and you answer and you provide. Verse 30, and listen to the plea of your servant and your people Israel, that when we pray toward this place, when that... When they pray toward this place and listen in heaven, your dwelling place, we know that's really where you are, but this is some kind of channeled, focused power of God and listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and then you'll hear, then you'll forgive. That's a big part of it. We need the sacrifice. We need the forgiveness. We need you. If we're ever going to have a relationship with our creator, we need cleansing. There's the picture. I think that's helpful to think through how you would live as an Old Testament saint thinking about God. You would think as you laid there in your backyard, looking up at the stars, God is there. He's out there, the big God of the universe. But then you'd get up and you'd think, oh yeah, but God is there. His name is there. The kabod of God is there. And everyone wanted to, to be near it if you were godly. You know, when you're in sin, you want to run from it. But if you're godly and pious and contrite, you want to be there. You want to have that experience in worship and you want to be in the presence of of God's kabod, his glory, the expression of God. God is going to speak from there. God is going to answer prayer from there. It's as though God's most intimate expression of himself is in that worship place. Letter B, Jesus, God incarnate. 
I know you've thought of that many times, God incarnate. Okay, so we think of that every Christmas. We think of that all the time. Jesus is God incarnate. But we need to think about that from the biblical perspective. If you were a first century disciple and you came to grips with the deity of Christ, you start to recognize that your paradigm of God's kabod is beginning to shift. Something's got to change in the way that you think about God. Go to John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, the tent of meeting. I'll speak to you there. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that has been made. Part of why he's continually showing his creative power through creative miracles throughout his ministry. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Think about that now. What was the, one of the most obvious things about that temple? Even the idea of the glory of God constantly gets connected in analogies and expressions with photons and light. Even in there, you had the lamp that couldn't go out. He was the light of life. In him was life, and, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. If you want to think about a painter or an artist in the Old Testament, thinking of the glory of God, the, the, the power of God, the presence of God, the greatness of God, I'm sure they would paint it with, with light you know, emanating from the Temple Mount in Mount Zion. Now, the opening lines of the Gospel of John is, you know what? Here's God incarnate, the Word of God, the expression of God himself. He is God. Now, he's like light shining in a darkness. Drop down to verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Seems to be on a crash course with the other focalized point of presence of God's expression and name and gravity and glory on earth. And he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world didn't know him. He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. Back in a few minutes to verses 12 and 13, verse 14. And that word, verses 1 and 2, became flesh. Here's an important word if you want to think about temple, tabernacle, and dwelt among us. The word, the expression of God, dwelt among us. If you were an Old Testament saint lying in your backyard, looking up at night, thinking of your creator, you'd say to God, even the highest heaven can't contain him. He's transcendent. And yet there's this place where the focalized presence of God dwells among us. God is among us. And we are among the name and glory of God. Now look at the rest of verse 14. And we have seen his glory, Christ's glory, the word, the glory of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. You want to take any of the Old Testament songs talking about the temple, the tabernacle, the worship center. These are the themes, the glory of God, the grace of God, the truth of God. Here's the expression. There's a connection. You need to start thinking through. You're a first century disciple, a follower of Christ. You start to understand the deity of Christ. You recognize this is God incarnate. The God, the triune God is now here walking among us. You start to get the sense that what do I now think of the temple? Great question. John looks at that in the next chapter. Go to chapter 2. Drop down to verse 13. It was the Passover of the Jews. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple, he found those selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers were sitting there. Now you get to the place where the kabod of God, the glory of God, the grace and truth of God should abide. The place of prayer, the place where God speaks to his people. And it's filled with people trying to make a buck. He gets angry, makes a righteous anger, makes a cord, a whip out of cords, and he drove them out of the temple, the sheep and the oxen. And he poured over the coins, poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of trade. 
And his disciples remembered what was written. He's quoting now Psalm 69. Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Now, this is an interesting response. He could have said anything. Think about it. I can raise someone from the dead. I've got powers. I'm your creator. I got knowledge you don't have. No, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build, literally to rebuild, I mean, to be technical, this temple. Herod had done a lot of work on remodeling this temple, Zerubbabel's temple. And you will raise it up in three days. But, John says, he was speaking about the temple of his body. There's an interesting parallel. You've got the prologue of John talking in terms that we would only really think about on earth being the temple, the tabernacle the place where God's glory is focalized. Now he is the focalized glory and presence and truth and and greatness of God. Now he goes to the temple and it's corrupt and he drives out these people and then he talks about himself as the temple. When therefore, verse 22, he's raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus, God incarnate. When you think about that, you have to recognize the kind of the train wreck you're, you're heading toward in terms of that. Now, Jesus was all about revealing that in his ministry. Let's call it this on the backside of your worksheet, temple obsolescence. I'm just trying to keep these short, but then I probably should have said that differently. Temple's going to be obsolete. You're in John chapter 2, flip over to chapter 4. You remember this discussion in the middle of the woman of the well dialogue? He says to her in verse 21, woman, believe me. This is John 4, 21. You know this text. You don't have to look it up. Listen to it. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither in this mountain, Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritans worship, nor in Jerusalem will will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. God had chosen Zion. God had chosen Jerusalem. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming, and now it's here. I mean, you're looking at the tabernacling of God among you when the true worshipers will worship the Father. It's interesting this comes out first. Worship the Father in what? Spirit and in truth. Now, commentators will go in all different directions on this. The ESV translators don't capitalize this. But if you want to start to think about where we're already heading in this discussion, the idea of spirit in the middle of this, it's a big deal. I mean, it certainly fits. But the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. Hmm, okay. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Then you know what happened. Speaking of Good Friday... Matthew 27, 50 and 51, he cried out on the cross, loud voice, yielded up his spirit, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And what did I tell you on Good Friday? That represented the destruction of the whole thing, right? I mean, that was the barrier to keep people out. And all of a sudden now, this gigantic Herodian uh, divider, this curtain was split in half. From top to bottom, the earth shook and the rocks were split. We talked about some of that. The destruction, though, of the worship center that barrier, that center, that whole system now becoming obsolete. Um, That's a theme throughout the teaching of Christ that we want to now try and tie together with this and spend our time here. Gave you way too much room for letter C, didn't I? Letter D, Christians. Now let's come back to the topic at hand, and that's the indwelling of the Spirit. Go with me, if you would, to John 17. Let's, Let's look at this maybe in a way you've not looked at it in the past. The topics on the table are the temple the glory of God, the focalized presence of God on earth, chosen method by God to put his voice, if you will, on the planet in a place where people would look to that place, pray to that place. It would be the glory of God on the planet. Now, Christ comes. He is the incarnate God. He is the light that's in the world. He is 
everything the temple would be and his death, the completion of his mission, the sacrifice, which we didn't even take time to, to unpack, but all the things that related to what the temple did, his life did on the cross. Now that's destroyed supernaturally by God himself. Now the promise of the indwelling. But before we get to that specifically, which we've already looked at some of these passages, let's look at this prayer. And again, we only looked at a few cherry-picked verses, but if we went throughout the whole Old Testament and looked at the description of the tabernacle and then the temple, the worship center, you'd see this a lot. Verse 6, the name, God's name. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Just like Israel, out of the world, picked from the rest, unique in the center, the manifestation of God's name in the temple. I've come and done that now. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. Now they know that everything that you've given me is from you. And I've given them the words that you gave me. And they've received them, and they've come to know in truth that I came from you, and they believe that you sent me. I'm praying for them. Not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. All mine and yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them I'm no longer in the world. He's about to leave, praying here before he dies. But they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you've given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name. I was the tabernacle among them, which you have given me. And I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except for the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Verse 13, but now... I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they were not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, here's the important parallel now, so I sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I consecrate myself that they also might be sanctified in truth. I don't ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they also may be in us. Note this, one of the most important phrases here, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. I'm in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory, verse 22, that you have given me, I've given them, that they may be one even as we're one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and I love them even as you loved me. That's an amazing passage when you start to, in your own thinking, put this together with this transference of the tabernacling of God in Christ superseding the tabernacling of God in a focalized kabod, the glory of God in the Old Testament. And now what are we left with? Because Christ is leaving. Now what's going to happen? He destroyed the temple when he left. Now what are we going to have? Now go to John 14. We're not far from it. We've read this before, but with that as the backdrop, see what this passage now does in your thinking. Drop down to verse 15 to get us started. John 14, 15. If you love me, Jesus says to his disciples, you'll keep my commandment. And I'll ask the Father, and he'll give you another, the parakletos, the helper. And he'll be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth who the world can't receive, whom the world can't receive, because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. If you just put all of what we've said so far, and now you read that text, 
the glory of God, the Father, in Christ, and Christ in the Father. Now he says, I'm going to be in them, and I'm going to perfect them in this unified relationship, not only with each other, but in me. Now he says, the glory of God, the the dwelling of God, all of this that's been in me, I'm now putting in them. You know him. He dwells with you. He'll be in you. If you ask the Old Testament saint, God's spirit uh, dwelling with you, they'd say, yeah, right up the road. God's spirit there with us. God dwells with us. His name is among us. Even the Old Testament, we started in, in Deuteronomy and Exodus. His name will dwell. He will dwell among them. God and his spirit dwells among them. Now, that relationship with the spirit, to be specific about the third person the Godhead, is now going to be in us. I'm going to leave you as orphans. Verse 18 says, I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But because you see me, because I live, you'll also live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. There's the language of the prayer in in John 15, preceded in the context of a discussion about the coming of the Spirit to be in them. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I'll love him, and I will. Here's a key word to the Old Testament worship center. Manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, poor guy, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not the world? How is that? If you're starting to pick up on this paradigm, you think, well, I get that. I understand how that is. Back to it in a second. Verse 23, Jesus answered. Here's his answer. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and, he, and, and my Father will love him. And he will come to him, now underline this, and he will make our, and, and will make our home with him. Now, if you even start taking that theme and saying, okay, well, where does the New Testament go with that? The coming of Christ really was a path of, of conflict with the temple. The temple's destroyed at the end of his ministry. As he's wrapping up his ministry in the upper room discourse, culminating with the prayer, the great high priestly prayer of John 17, the focus of this is when I go, I'm in them. Just like you're in me here, the glory of God in my ministry on this earth, now I'm going to transfer this to them specifically through the indwelling of the Spirit. Spirit with them, dwelling with them, now in them. And now God makes his home in people. Now, 1 Corinthians six nineteen. You don't need to turn there. I know you know that text, but I would like you to turn to the next door neighbor here, so we might as well first get to 1 Corinthians. Those are the passages. 1 Corinthians 6. Instead of home, house, dwell, manifest my name, all of those things, let's just be real explicit in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Here's the triune God, co-equal with the Father, in us, and now we're even called a temple. Let me make this case. Though we Americans like to personalize everything and individualize everything, and it's true, you are the individual temple of God, that's not the first image that's given to us in 1 Corinthians. Back to chapter 3 now. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, which I think is the predominant viewpoint in the New Testament, even though we are individuals and stand or fall before God on our own, the picture of Christ leaving is the individual focalized presence, the kabod and glory of God in one person, the light of God, the light of life. Now he transfers that responsibility to his people corporately. And that's why this language makes so much sense. Verse 16. Do you not know that you, now again in in Greek, you've got you singular and you plural, you all. This is plural. Do you not know that you all are God's temple? How does that define? Well, like it is in 1 Corinthians 6, that God's spirit dwells in you. Old Testament Jewish people thinking dwelling, we're thinking in the temple. Anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you all are that temple. 
Now, if you're a Jew, having read the book of Hebrews in the first century, knowing I have no priesthood anymore, we have no sacrifices anymore, Christ was the sacrifice, we have no temple anymore, we have no worship center anymore, this is a real letdown, but it's not a letdown. It's an upgrade. Why? Because now the focalized kabod presence of God is now transferred from Christ himself as the representative of God on earth to the people of God. To where now, and it's language for us, I don't know, even non-Christians talk about their body as a temple, I suppose. But for them, this is a huge statement. The church in Corinth of all places, hundreds of miles from Jerusalem, that assembly sitting in one place in that province is now called the temple of God, the holy temple of God, so holy that if someone wants to do something bad to it, God will protect it and vindicate it and destroy those people because they're the holy temple of God, you all, corporately, you Corinthians. That's a big truth, and there's so many others if you just start looking for it. We read one on Sunday and Saturday night I thought was worth putting on the screen here, First Peter 2, 4 and 5. You've come to him a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Where do the priests do their functioning? Where do they do their work? In the temple, in the holy place, the holy house, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So to apply this to the Corinthian church, they sit there as the temple of God. They are the priesthood of God. As they worship, they're offering the sacrifices of God. That is the holy temple, the manifestation of God's glory on earth. How about this one? Ephesians 2, 17 through 22. And he came and he preached to you who were far off, peace, and to those who were near. Same thing, peace. The Jews in Jerusalem, Judea, the Samaritans in Samaria, and the people in the ends of the earth, Italians, Ephesians, Romans, doesn't matter. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. If you had access to the Father, you must be the high priest one day a year on Yom Kippur. But that temple veil has been ripped. The temple now is no longer a temple in Jerusalem. It's people near and far off, doesn't matter where you live, both having access to the Father because of the Spirit dwelling within you. You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself, as First Peter would have gone on to say had we read the whole thing, the chief cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into, just in case we're missing it and thinking I'm stretching words like household or members of a household, here it is in in yellow and gray, a holy temple in the Lord. You also being built together into a dwelling place for God. Go back to Exodus, Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch. That was the place where God dwelt, the kabod of God, the glory of God. In him, you're also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's what makes it the reality. The indwelling of God's spirit theologically is something so radically different and and such an upgrade if you were an Old Testament person thinking about New Testament realities to think that the temple would become obsolete and that as we gather together who were used to be called aliens and strangers if anybody would ever think of people living on the other side of the planet we are so far outside the covenant people of Israel and yet now when we gather in Corinth or Ephesus or in South Orange County, California, we become as holy as Mount Zion and the temple, and as priests working in the most holy days of the year, we are the focalized presence of God on planet Earth through the reality of the Spirit no longer being with us, dwelling with us, and us with Him, but now He dwells within us. That relational change 
that is spelled out by spatial or geographical switches, you know, he's now with us and now in us, is gigantic. The glory of indwelling. The Spirit of God lives in you. You're a part of a body. If you're part of a church like ours, thousands of other Christians, a smaller church, you know, dozens or hundreds, we are the temple of God. Let's talk about this. The security of sealing. The security of sealing. If you listen to my Friday afternoon radio show, not the sermon broadcast, but the Q&A, smile at me if you ever listen to that. Listen to that sometimes. You know I'm on a network where they don't always agree with my theology, which makes some of the questions interesting because it seems like people that call in on Fridays often are trying to mix it up. Some people know my theology is not in keeping with my co-host or with many of the guys in the network. One of the things that always seems to come up is this issue of what they like to say, once saved, always saved, right? Eternal security, uh, perseverance of the saints, whatever you'd like to call it. When you look at pneumatology and you study this idea of sealing, we've already looked at it when we looked at the, you know, the, the pictures and, and types, I don't know what we called it, the, the emblems, I think we called it, of the spirit. One of them was sealing, and we just gave you that picture of a seal that solidifies and gives it the official stamp. And we talked about that being related to security. Well, I want to unpack that for the remaining time that we have. The securing of, security of sealing, the idea of sealing. I think if you understand this aspect of pneumatology, if you didn't understand anything else about you know, the issue of eternal security, if you want to call it that, the perseverance of the saints, once saved, always saved, whatever you want to call it, if you only had this data, it would be plenty for you to come to the conclusion that, um, that we are secure in Christ. Let's think this through beginning with uh, John 1. Back to John 1, and let's talk about God's decisions. God throughout the scripture, is described as the one initiating this relationship with human beings. Even in the passage we read in John 17, you gave these people to me, and I kept them, and I got them, and these are mine, and I've given them your name, and I've manifested myself to them, and I'm sanctifying them in truth. All this picture of people, a designated group being given to Christ, and then he gets them, and he has his work done in them, and they're indwelt by the Spirit, as we learn throughout the Upper Room Discourse, and then he gets his job done, and he's saying, you know, the only one I lost is the one that was a part of us, but of course in Scripture, was prophesied to be the the son of perdition, the one who would betray me. The idea here in Scripture, if you look at John 1, back to where we were, we looked in this passage, I said we'd be back to these few verses, but let's get the running start in verse 9. We see that the idea of God doing this work in people's lives individually begins with his decision. Verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. That's the problem of sin. If you want to know why all of these are interconnected with, with depravity in, in the debates of Calvinism, for instance, it's because that is, that's the crux of it all. If the problem is that we don't know him and we need to know him and we can't know him because we're dead in our transgressions and sins, then everything really hinges on that truth. How bad is the problem? And in this case, he says he came into his own, but his own people didn't receive him. But to all who did receive him, you say, well, there you go. I received him, and people here did receive him. And it wasn't maybe all of his own, but there were several that did. Those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, which, of course, the book of John is going to highlight extensively that it's not just Jews, but it's all kinds of people who were born. Now, here's the thing. Not of blood, nor, here's the important part, the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If you just took that one verse in verse 13 and you tried to look throughout the whole book of John as to how he develops that idea, you would see it reprised over and over and over again. And I just quoted one example of a passage we just happened to read in John 17, that God gives a lot of people, a lot, a group of people, a segment of people to the son. The idea of God 
making this decision about those who would be born of him. But if you want to talk about being born of God, I suppose the passage you're going to think of is the one two chapters away in John 3, which is worth looking at, particularly as we think about the activity of the Spirit of God making people born again. This birth is explained by Christ. And of course, he ties it to the Spirit. The description of the Spirit we often overlook is interesting in this text as it relates to the work and the initiation and the volition of the Spirit in new birth. Let's start in verse 3. Jesus says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can he be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Which is insulting, really, because... Jesus is talking to a seminary graduate, probably on the track that he's on. He's, he's a teacher of these things. Obviously, you're talking to this rabbi who you know, is famed to be someone special, the Messiah. He comes to him. He says this. He should immediately go through the annals of his mind in Scripture and think about how this can be possibly true. But instead, you can see the, the incredulous nature of Nicodemus answering with a stupid response. And it is stupid. Come on. You know Jesus doesn't mean that, but he says it. Jesus answers. Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit. Now, if you've heard me preach on this, which most of you have, you know that I'm I'm trying to get, if I'm Jesus, his mind back to the image of new birth. And new birth is discussed, especially in the Ezekiel texts regarding, and not just in Ezekiel, but many places, but in that one about the new birth and the new heart and this new spirit and all these things, the indwelling spirit, in terms of water being washed and cleansed, the idea of forgiveness. Unless you're born of that picture of the prophetic new covenant promise of water and spirit, which is not baptism, it's that that image of cleansing, he can't enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, but that which is born of spirit is spirit. Don't marvel at this that I said to you must be born again. Think spirit, think pneumatology, think Old Testament professor of theology. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. Here's this mysterious nature of the wind. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. How did that guy get saved? How did that guy become a Christian? How did that work out? The Spirit's volitional initiation of this, the triune God choosing these things, is the picture here of the new birth that happens because of the Spirit's regenerative work, new birth. And we don't have time to examine all the text as it relates to this, but that's a good place for us to start. And if you've heard me preach, and if not, go to, go to Focal Point. There's plenty of sermons on this, and we always begin with the volition of God. And I, here's how I like to say it, as I'm sure others, I'm sure I stole this from several people, but the decisions that we make are contingent on the decisions of God. God's decisions in election or predestination are not contingent on our decisions. We like to think it that way because that's the way we experience it. Just like, let me take a pause here for a second on this because I know people always wonder about this. I know we we, we only experience what we experience, which is our decision-making. And one day you thought you got smart enough to choose Christ. Now we read the Bible and we say, well, you couldn't have because you were dead in your transgressions and sins. This was a work of the Spirit. He comes and goes in a mysterious way and does his work and saves all kinds of people. And unless you understand the Scripture, you think, well, I I was just, I kind of got, I woke up on my own as opposed to being resurrected from spiritual deadness to Christ. When you think about God's decisional decision-making, And as I say, he's not choosing you by going back in time, looking ahead to see if you would choose him, but he has made a decision that your decision is now based upon. 
because of his volitional gracious work, his mercy to save you, to make you alive in Christ. I just want to say this. I want to make, in my theology, God's decision-making bigger than people's decision-making, not just my own decision-making, but the decision-making of other people. Think this through now. If I pull out a gun right now and shoot you, right? let's say it's your non-Christian neighbor that you brought to church, and I kill him before he becomes a Christian because you were trying to get him saved. I have taken away all of his volitional choices, have I not? I just killed him. He's making no more decisions. Every decision from what he's going to be dressed in and what kind of casket we're going to buy him at Costco, someone else has to make those because he makes no decisions anymore. He's dead. Who took his decision-making away? I did. How did I do that? I took out a gun and I killed him. See, you have to say in everyday life that your decisions really are limited by other people's decisions. And all we want to say is that in the Bible, what we see is a, God's who's, a God whose decisions are far more important and far more binding and authoritative than any human decision. And all I'm saying is if you're going to allow someone on the planet to take away your volitional decision-making, which you do just by living on planet Earth, you're going to tell me that God's decision doesn't trump all of the decisions that you could possibly make? Of course it does. Now, there's mystery in that. You could be a fatalist and you can say all these weird things about it, and I've heard all of that. But what I'm telling you is at some point you have to recognize if the Bible talks about God's eternal choices regarding your salvation, then his decisions become the preeminent, the foundational, the overarching decision to which our decisions then follow. I know that brings up lots of questions. I preached a lot on that. God's work in evangelism is a series. If you're new to the church, I did in the book of Romans. Look it up on Focal Point. Download all that for free. We grapple with that at length, an hour at a time. God's decisions. That's the place to start. We don't have time to unpack it any more than that. But in light of God's decision, we've read this passage in the past, but it's worth looking at again, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. When Paul is talking about his inability to make binding decisions, which is what this text is about in 2 Corinthians 1, he has made a decision to visit them. He could not carry that out because his decisions are really something he recognizes as being impotent because of his own humanity. But he says, God is not like that. Surely as God is faithful, our word to you, our intention to you, verse 18 says, of 2 Corinthians 1, verse 18, has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim to you, Salvanius and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it's always yes His decisions always stand. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. God promises it, decides it, wills it. He does it. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Our decisions, our responses, we are, we're just falling along in his. That you can, you can rush to fatalism if you'd like, but the idea of that picture here, and I know it starts with the idea of why didn't you come when you said you were coming? Now we're talking theologically, verse 21. For it is God who establishes us with you. And in this case, he didn't want us to be there when we planned to be there. He's establishing us with you in Christ. And as Christians, he does that. And he has anointed us. We talked about that in that week on the emblems and and pictures of the Spirit. And who has put his seal on us. You want to talk about a yes. This has got a seal on it. And given us his Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The picture of the spirit being depicted as a seal, this official sanction, the seal of God, is tied in this context to the decision-making that's weak in humans, but always yes in Christ. God has power to make decisions, keep promises. He does his work. We saw that, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 1. It is because of him that we're in Christ. He makes decisions. He carries them out. And the picture of that as Christians is his seal is his spirit in our hearts. Chapter 5, 
2 Corinthians 5. Again, we have the idea of the spirit as a seal. In this case, he doesn't even use the word seal, but he picks up on the word he used in chapter 1, which was guarantee. Let's start in verse 1. We know that if this tent, your body, that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Even that picture of tabernacle and temple, temporary and permanent. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. That'll be a permanent home. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, verse 4, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. We don't want to be undisembodied spirit. We want that eternal resurrected body. So that what is mortal, that's the problem with our failing bodies, may be swallowed up in life. He who has prepared us for this, what is it? The confidence that if I die, I'm going to be embodied in a resurrected body. He who prepared us for this very thing is God. God got us on this track. He does this work who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. In this context, a guarantee of what? In chapter one, it was a bit vague, I suppose, the promise of God. We didn't know what the yes was from God. In this context, it's as a Christian having the hope of a resurrected body. He has done this. He's prepared us for this. And the hope of my redemption, which he says in Romans 8, Paul does, is the the redemption of my body. The guarantee of that in my life is the fact that he's put his spirit in our heart, as he put in chapter 1 or says here, given us the spirit. It's a guarantee. Those two passages should be enough. But let me give you a classic text, not too far away. Ephesians chapter 1. It's where we see the word sealed again. Sealed with the promise of the spirit. Verse 13. And I understand the timing of this uh, seems to be when we've made a decision. And certainly it is. We've made a decision to follow Christ. I'm all about that. Decide to follow Christ. When you do, though, we recognize, if we study the Bible, that this is a decision that was contingent on a decision of God. But let's look at verse 13. When God carries the conversion of our lives to the point where we hear the word of truth, verse 13, in him also, when you heard the word of truth, that was all part of the context of Christ at work in us, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. At that point, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The great verse, but let's catch the whole context, okay? We read it once. We're going to read it again, but let's start in verse 3 where the paragraph begins. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, made a decision in the boardroom of heaven, and all of the things that he's planned are yes in him including the redemption of our bodies. When I die, I'm confident I'm going to have a resurrected body because I'm in Christ and the seal of the Spirit in my life is guarantee of that. Even as he chose us in him, when did he figure all this out? Before the foundation of the world. He picked us to be a part of this thing then, that we should be set apart, holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, not because we deserved it, we we don't, according to the purpose of his will. According to what? Most people would say, who don't want to have that high a view of God's decision-making power, they want to say, because God looked ahead and looked at our almighty power of decision-making and saw that we were going to make the right decision, so he went back and he did it according to our will. But the text says, this was a decision predestined for adoption as sons according to the purpose of his own will, not our will. That gets back to John 1. This is a decision of God. All to the praise of his glorious grace. Not so, as 1 Corinthians 1 says, you can do this when you get there and say, look at my decision, look at what I did, look at how I abided in Christ and made it here. All of this work, all of this adoption, all the purpose and predestination to the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us with. Look at that. With which he has blessed us in the beloved, in Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood. 
the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, his decision-making, his own counsel, making known to us the mystery of his will, which is like the spirit. We don't know where it comes or why it comes, but we, we get it. We understand it now, at least that part of it. We don't understand why. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. Verse 11, in him we've obtained an inheritance. Not we might, not I hope you hang in there and you get it. We've got it. Why? Because the guarantee, we have the guarantee. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of the wills that he sees when he plays the tape forward. No, no, after the counsel of his will. So that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. Now, he's a first century Christian. He can say that. We may be some of the last to hope in Christ. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, this is the timeline of our conversion story, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Couldn't be clearer than that, I don't think. And yet we all want to empower our own Lives to a certain place where we dismiss these kinds of promises. One more, as long as you're next door to it. Chapter 2. Chapter 2. You were dead, verse 1 says, in, the tra- in, in trespasses and sin. That's the problem with making this decision without God's initiation because we were dead. In which you once walked, you lived that way, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. Sounds pretty bad for us among whom we all lived, once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath. We were at enmity with God. We were hostile toward him like the rest of mankind. But we woke up one day and decided to change all that. It's not the picture or the flavor or the tenor of the Bible. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. There's the picture of God bringing people into his family. By grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now don't slip off your little seat up there and fall out. That's not the picture of the Bible. He's making these decisions. He's carrying them through. He raised us up with him, seated us in the heavenly places in Christ so that, verse 7, in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved. It's through faith. It's not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not the result of works that no one may boast. We're his workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Even that he gets credit, credited with. You did something great for God, that's great. And you worked at it, that's great. You strive, you labor, that's great, you ought to. But in the end, we recognize in his providential plan, this is all a part of what he was doing. God's guarantee, the sealing of the Spirit, is woven throughout these discussions of the permanence of God's plan in our lives. The scope of the promise. Let me give you these up on the screen. The scope of the promise, John 14, 16. I'll ask the Father, he'll give you another, a helper. Right? I'm saying make sure you don't slip off of that place, right? It's not the picture in the Bible. This is a promise, listen to this now, to be with you forever. Even that alone is, I don't know, helpful for us. When he talks about the Spirit coming as a seal, that seems permanent enough, but these words are helpful, with you forever. Philippians 1, 6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He gets it started. The Spirit is the guarantee. He's the empowerment. It's going to get it done. He'll finish this. Romans 5 I didn't put up on the screen. I didn't have space, but let me read it for you. Verses 8 through 11. Romans 5, 8 through 11. But God shows his love for us in that. While we were still sinners, he died for us. Therefore, now listen to this carefully. 
We have, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. Because of his death, I'm justified. How much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? If you can confidently say, I am justified because of the death of Christ. You trusted in him. You believe the promise that if you believe in Christ, you trust in Christ, you're saved. The Bible here says, how much more will you be saved then from the wrath of God? In other words, if you have confidence of that now, how much more should you be confident that at the last day you will avoid the condemnation of God? For while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. How much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? The, the building of confidence is like, if you're confident now, how much more should you be confident that he's going to bring this to completion? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we now have received reconciliation. This is a package deal. As Roman 8, Romans 8 goes on to say, and you don't need to turn to this one either, you know it. When he talks about these things in our lives, he talks about the foreknowledge, the loving of God ahead of time, the predestination to become conformed to the image of his son. If he's predestined us, called us, justified us, glorified us. The chain in the links of that plan start with God, end with God. God brings it to completion all the way through. The scope of the promise of the Spirit is not one that comes and goes. The question I know is in people's lives, well, what about sin or what about the experience of someone I know who seems to be in with God and have participated with us and seems to have a testimony and then bails out? We address that all the time. And people will say, well, see there, you can be saved and lose your salvation. The reality of God's spirit in your life, if it's the spirit of God in the New Testament, the spirit who seals us, there's a guarantee of your inheritance. You can't get it and lose it, which is why the Bible, I think, gives us plenty of examples of people that never had it to start with, but give us that picture of attachment. And this is where I do need to take you as we wrap this up. The proof of God's work in Hebrews 3. The picture and proof of God's indwelling spirit is something that prohibits the reality, that makes impossible the reality of my life having the spirit of God as a guarantee of my inheritance and then losing the spirit of God. Here's how it's put in in Hebrews chapter 3. And to tie all this together from the first half of what we were dealing with, the indwelling of God, look at how this is put. This is fascinating how it ties it all together for us tonight. Verse 6. Hebrews 3, 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. What's God's house? Ask any Old Testament. It's the temple. Before that, before Solomon, it was the tabernacle. And we are his house. There's the picture. Now, we are his house. Here's the conditional clause. If we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Well, see there, I know people that didn't hold fast to their confidence and their boasting in their hope of Christ is gone. So there, I guess, they had it and they lost it. That's where you have to read this verse very, very carefully and let it speak what it says. We are his house, if indeed we hold fast. Here's what I like to call the proof of God's work or the proof of God's presence. If the spirit of God is in you, you endure to the end because God's work is always carried to completion. There are plenty of bumps and left turns along the way. I get that. But the reality of God's house, if you are his house, if the dwelling of God is you, then you do endure to the end. That's how this put is put. It doesn't say you become his house. You earn the place to be his house. This is not you do these things and you get this status. It's if you have this status, you do these things. And that's different. Verse 7, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Psalm 95, today if you'd hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion, the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. 
Therefore, I was provoked with that generation, and I said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. That's important. There's something about the problem within them that was systemic from the beginning. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now take care, brothers, as he says to the congregation he's writing to, lest there be any of you with an evil, unbelieving heart. Think about that now. Leading you to fall away from the living God. Why would I fall away from this temple, the house of God? Why would I stop being a part of this, whether it's in Corinth or the Hebrew church or us here in Orange County? Why would I depart? Why would I defect? Why would I apostatize? In this text, pretty clear, because I have an unbelieving heart, an evil unbelieving heart. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, verse 13 says, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You start putting an exterior up. You start putting a layer up, a defense up. Then he says it again. For we have come to share in Christ. You are in this house. You are the dwelling of God. Christ is is your life. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. See, there it is again. I know I have the spirit of God and I'm a part of this. If you watch the evidence of that, continue on to the rest of my life. If it doesn't continue on for the rest of my life, guess what I'm not and never was? I never was a part of Christ. I never had a share in Christ. I never was his house. Verse 15, quoting Psalm 95 again. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart as they did in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt led by Moses? Now, here's a group led by their pastors, as chapter 13 says, and they're following the teaching and all a part of this thing. But just like that group had people that professed it but didn't possess it, he says, with, and with whom was he provoked for those 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness, and whom he did swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were dis... And whom did he swear that? But to those who were disobedient. So that we, so, so we see, rather, verse 19, that they were unable to enter. Why? Because they didn't believe. Unbelief. That's what he says, the unbelieving heart. Verse, verse 1, chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, the picture of the promised land, let us fear that any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. The picture of traveling into it, it's like you, you, did, you stopped short. For the good news came to us just as it did to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, underline it now, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. They didn't have a believing heart. There are people among us right now in this room probably, certainly in our church, who everyone thinks they they have it. They're a part of us. But the reality is they have an unbelieving heart. They go along with us for a while, but they don't enter the rest of God. They're not really a part of the house of God because the proof of God's work is endurance. That's why they talk about the perseverance of God's people. God's regenerate people who have the seal of the Spirit that guarantees an inheritance, they persevere to the end. Talk a lot more about that if you want to search focal point, if you care what I say about it. Uh, Plenty of sermons that touch on that. On the newly revised, I should note, focal point website. Have you been on focal point lately? Newly revised focal point website. You need to go there and check it out. Let's pray, though. You can do that later. Let's pray. God, thanks for all you do for us, giving us all the advantages, literacy, ability to be in our right mind, sitting here, studying your word, thinking thoughts about your spirit that maybe we haven't thought in the past, the parallel to the temple of the Old Testament, that we are the temple of God now, that the obsolescence of the temple is so major, a shift in your workings with people on earth that we should feel so blessed and privileged. And as I tried to make the emphasis, because the Bible makes the emphasis, it's a corporate reality. I know it's individual, but pray that would help us too, as the writer of Hebrews later goes on to say, that we shouldn't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And God, thanks so much that the reality of sealing is one that gives us a great sense of security. 
When we see the evidence of the indwelling spirit, we know that his presence in our hearts is the seal that guarantees our inheritance, which makes us recognize that that presence is a reminder to us that you're in us and that you will continue and complete what you've started in our lives on the day that you invaded our lives. So God, I pray that would give us a great sense of security when our hearts doubt us. I think of John, First John, talking about that issue. Our, our, our own hearts can cause us to doubt, and yet you're greater than our hearts. Your promise for us should be believed. We should be confident in the fact that what you say you'll do, it's always yes in Christ. You don't equivocate. You know the plan. You're working it out. May that kind of security give us a great sense of ambition and risk in our Christian life that we're willing to step out and do things that maybe we wouldn't otherwise do to recognize how great it is to be able to know that we're your children. And while we can be displeasing children or pleasing children tonight, we we revel in the fact that we are your kids. And for those that aren't, maybe there are some unbelieving hearts here that are just going along and conforming externally to what we're talking about. I pray you'd convict them tonight and that you would, through your gracious will, make them alive in Christ tonight. Make that change so evident to them that they make this a part of their testimony that they see this night was a night you changed them from the inside out. Thanks for your gracious work in doing that in exponential ways in our church. We thank you that you're bringing people to Christ. Bring even more. Let us reap a big harvest here in the church as you see fit. We pray you'd see this church as a good place to put new Christians, new kids of yours in this place to care for them in our church. And I pray, God, you'd give us that sense of of your entrustment and stewardship in that regard. Thanks for this crowd, for this team. Thanks for all the things that are going on in this campus right now that aren't happening in this room. We pray you'd protect our church, guide it, make it strong. Give us a great harvest of people in the future, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.